of max heart rate as a measure of where people may be in fatigue is 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 the important thing so like it does vary on the age of the riders anyway you know 119 excess of 200 so um yeah and they they you know they're not afraid to go there i think when you're at that level of sport um you know the ability to go to those places and hold it much longer than than somebody else you know you talk about going into the hurt locker it's often one of the things that makes a difference and that's what goes off and above the neck as well it's the willingness to to push yourself where others may not be willing to go episode 38 and the watchword this week is sports performance scott jaw started life as a talented all-round sportsman but without a particular plan he followed his passion and studied sports and sports science in great detail eventually gaining a PhD and a PGCE. As Scott explains, he kept studying because he was passionate about sport and performance as opposed to having a particular goal in mind. People often say that we should follow our passions in life. Whilst this this is certainly true, it can be difficult to achieve when real life or pragmatism gets in the way. Or perhaps you've never been told to follow your passion. As Scott says, he was lucky. The beginning of his career coincided with a revolution in UK sport investment and development. He went on to spend 10 years with UK Sport working on the Olympic programme, two years at the English Rugby Football Union, three years at Team Sky Cycling Performance Hub, and he is now two years into his tenure as Director of Sport at Millfield School. You can now listen to this episode and all other episodes of the podcast via our new website, which is thewatchword.co.uk. We're really pleased with it. I made it with the assistance of my friend and guest number two on the podcast, Paul Mather. We will be building it out with uh, more content over the coming weeks and months, but for now it has every episode, a short biography of each guest and information on how and why the podcast started. So you can now listen to every episode of the podcast via the website, thewatchword.co.uk. All the links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, etc. are all there. Send us a message through the website if you have any feedback or ideas. For now, though, I'm Mark Thompson. This is the Watchword podcast. This week, I spoke to Scott Draw, and the watchword is sports performance. When did you know that you wanted to have a career in in sports performance? Um, I guess I, I never did actually. To be honest, um, I uh, I guess I always played sport as a child and. As you go through your education, you know, I was probably a jack of all trades. Um, I sort of was in, in an academy at professional football level. I county basketball, could swim, could do most things. So sport was more just a passion. And in the early years when I started in my, in my educational journey, the idea of doing sports science was still relatively young as an education pathway. So I, I just followed what I loved, to be honest. Um, and say when I started my degree, the jobs that now exist just weren't in place. And by the time I finished my PhD, the Olympic system as we know it was, was, I guess, just being conceived. And so, you know, I guess the timing around it all and, and the, you know, there's a lot of serendipity behind that. So, but I love sport. I had a passion for sport. Um, and I guess as those jobs emerged, you know, you just continue to follow that pathway. And that still exists today. Yeah, I mean, you, your, your journey, looking at your, your sort of academic background, you, it's, you've essentially made a decision to go down the route of, of sports science and sports performance at a really early age. So you've, you've kind of followed your passion from the, the, the absolute beginning and then you've got all of the qualifications to back it up, really. I mean, you've got 
you've got a lot of qualifications in terms of um, sport and and uh, and performance, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, um, again, it was never sort of intended when. So um, when I went to university in London first and started the journey in sports science, I I, um, I guess that was a that's where the light bulb switched for me. Um, just around understanding some of the behaviours that enable you to be successful in life. Um, so you put the work ethic in and, you, you know, unsurprisingly, things tend to come back. I needed to take a year after that. I was working more in health and fitness. I was really into training and conditioning and nutrition. And a lot of that's because of the education I was engaged in. Um, and then I moved to Loughborough and on a scholarship. Um, and then it really grew from there. So you're at Loughborough, which is the most preeminent centre for uh sports sports science in the world really and particularly in the uk and it just flourished the opportunities emerge um i was really fortunate to i ended up doing some teaching while i was doing my uh, phd there as that system evolved and got to meet some physios from aston villa and that got me engaged in professional football so like things just happened happened but um and, and then I guess that in 1997 when the government made a decision to invest in olympic sport and you had the emergence of, I guess, the EIS didn't even exist as it was through UK sport. I was coming out the back end and still love what I do and was really fortunate to get some roles in the system at that time. And then it just grows. It was like being part of a startup. So you're one of these early young whippersnappers, really passionate about what you do, high work ethic. Um, and you're part of that startup entity then. We don't really know quite what you do. And, you, and although we had some excellent guidance for some brilliant leaders. Uh, and then the path, the system just grows to what it is now, really. It's like a super tanker sport. I guess the emergence of lottery funding, the emergence of broadcasting investment has helped create this very systematic structure around development. Mm. Um, so it's just, it, it's now like that. And it wasn't when I sort of started my career. So, you know, I was in the very early stage of, of an evolving business and an evolving industry. Um, and, you know, you're just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. So um, it just, that's just the way it sort of played itself out. But, you know, I, I guess the heart of that was just to love what I did. I love problem solving. Um, you know, you just love working with really smart, intelligent people. So it just, it, you're just in that right place at the right time. But, you know, I've been really fortunate to have a very, a background in multi-sport um, as well as, you know, as well as in single sports. I've been really fortunate to work across all aspects of the pathway. So I'm really yeah, I guess, you know, the, my current role at Millfield School means I'm at the early stages, the really youth sport, where we have a significant a young, talented individuals who go on to do amazing things. Um, and I've been at the high end, you know, part of a team trying to chase yellow jerseys and part of a big organisation also trying to pursue Olympic medals. And so it's just, I guess, the diversity, breadth and depth I've been able to experience today has been pretty phenomenal. Um, and, you know, I've been really fortunate to work behind and learn off some amazing people. Yeah, and you've touched on some of the some of the areas that would be great to hear more about. There, I mean, some of them you mentioned yellow jerseys. Obviously, you worked at Team Sky, um, and it wasn't just yellow jerseys either, was it? It was pink jerseys and red ones as well um, during your tenure there. Um, and and Millfield School, you touched on. So we've we chatted briefly about that before. I went to Millfield for a couple of years, and um, it's, it's certainly looking back on it at the time, you just kind of accept it for what it is, but looking back on it now it's it's an extraordinary place um and and produces some incredible athletes i mean so, some of the athletes that that are that are playing today um are sort of household names aren't they i guess who would you who would you sort of if you were to list the current day current day 
um, athletes from Millfield that are, that are out there playing at the moment. Who, who would, oh, wow. Who but I guess one that people would be aware of last night, um, Callum Sheedy came on for Wales. Um, so he was way before my time here, but he came through the Millfield experience as well. One, you know, you have in rugby terms, Chris Robshaw, Macavanapolo, you have Jazz Sawyers in, in athletics, Tyrell Mings was here. So, you know, there are numerous, James Guy, you have numerous uh, individuals who, you know, as part of their early development experiences have come through come through Millfield um, you know I, I, and, you know and that's great for the school I think it really does draw you in it's interesting I just started my third year here and you know you really try to understand the, the culture and the environment of what goes on here but there is something magical about it I guess you know you spoke about that as well that draws you in um, the opportunities for young people who have who have that ability are pretty phenomenal I think that the fact the school really does focus on, although sport's a major thing, it's not the only thing. We're not a specialist sports school, but I think the balance between education, sport and pastoral care is pretty phenomenal. And I think increasingly people recognise that getting that balance right is fundamental for young people. Um, you know, not many people actually do go on and do amazing things in sport, but if you love what you do through sport, a bit like I do, you, there are so many careers now available. So I think that the beauty of Mealfield is that balance. Um, everything's here, you know, it's full on, but um, it did draw you in and, and you can have some remarkable development experiences. You know, and ultimately our job is to prepare people for the next step of their journey, whether that is into academies, whether that's onto a national governing body pathway, or whether that's into the world of work or US and UK universities. So, I mean, that, that's, that's the way we sort of set ourselves up to try to support young people. And sport's one of the vehicles that we use in, you know, for everyone of any ability. How how have you how have you developed the um, the model in terms of you, you are the director of sport at Millfields and obviously there is a team who who work for you in ter in terms of running individual sports. How have you uh, taken your experience working with organisations like UK Sport and Team Sky and then applied that to to a school? Like what what similarities have you tried to introduce? Uh, so, so it's interesting. I think in my first year at the school, um, I guess I didn't quite know what to expect. But <clears throat> with the evolution of sport, both um, in a, an Olympic, Paralympic sense, but also professionally in sports like cricket, rugby, football, um, they've all become, uh, I guess, very organised, systematic, um, you know, I guess, managed in a very professional way. And I think that system's evolved massively. I think my observation of coming into a school environment is how much we maybe haven't been able to keep up to date with that. Um, so you know, many of our coaches are brilliant in the way they're connected to what goes on locally. You know, many, many of the children, for example, that we have who are high ability and are connected to academies will do as much often, you know, much of their sport outside is inside school because that's the nature of what they do. So that landscape's changed significantly. Um, so just observing that was important. So how... In a place like this, how do you stay relevant for those individuals who've got that high ability and need to move on? And then equally, you know, outside of sport, sports had to change to become relevant to young people. So there's two sides to it. We're beginning to see, you know, new formats of the game, new sports emerge, you know, skateboard is now Olympic sport. The sports young people are doing and their engagement is very different to maybe what it was. So how do we, for those children who are just social recreational, who do sport for, you know, to be with friends, um, there's a different driver for them. You know, everyone does it to be with friends and that sort of thing. They have social acceptance. We've had to really consider 
what the sports are that we provide to give people those opportunities as well. So there's two sides to it, really. I think um, in that sense, at different ages of, of those that engage in it. But I think certainly um, our ability to stay connected to the landscape, our ability to provide, um, I guess, really good performance experiences, if I call it, that, call it that, for those who want to go on, have a career and aspiration and have the ability. We can't guarantee what they're going to do, but I think our ability to prepare them for the next step is really important. Um, that's something that we work on tre tremendously. And I guess the stuff that keeps me awake at night is, is engaging everybody in some form of sport or activity. And I think that's where the emergence of new sports, new formats of the game, um, I mean, we've got to be pretty dynamic to do that. So there's lots, can, that's lots that we can learn in um, how sport is now organised and managed, you know, with levels of responsibility and accountability that we need to bring in. I mean, when a child comes in to do an exam in the classroom, or a lesson, you're, you're measured by exams. So it's how we measure and assess that progress and ultimately how kids are enjoying and uh, get engaged in the experience of sport. And you sort of know it's working when they come back or they leave with a smile on their face and they come back next time. I think sometimes we make it overcomplicated. But that engagement, enjoyment and motivation to continue with the right challenge it's um, how you sort of get that right. And in some ways, that's, it's no different to being at the top end. People have got to enjoy the experience. They've got to be super engaged. They've got to adhere. And so, um, and that's the way you get better. If you, if you look back at your time at the Sky Performance Hub, for example, which um, that's, that's an area which obviously a lot of people would be very interested in. And during your, I think, I think you were there for just under three years. And during that time, as far as I can see, Chris Froome won the Tour de France in 2016 and 2017, and he won La Vuelta in uh, 2017 as well. Geraint Thomas won the Tour de France in 2018, yeah. and then Chris Froome won the Giro um, d'Italia in 2018. So possibly one of the most successful periods for, for Team Sky, who are obviously now known as Ineos Grenadiers. Um, how did how did that job come about and what was your role and and what are your sort of reflections on that environment when you look back at it now yeah i mean i was sort of um and um, so um i obviously was um had some some relationship through my work with cycling when i was in the olympic team so i was you know had a working relationship with dave i used to head up research innovation in the olympic space so we did a lot of work with track cycling in its emergence so there was a connection sort of there um I think the opportunity arose as Team Sky began to emerge. I was with England Rugby at the time, but I think um, so Dave Brailsford always had a vision and aspiration to have a very outwardly facing unit, if we call it that department, that would really be connected to the outside world, would know what's going on in all spaces, could bring the latest and greatest ideas into the team, could help test new ideas, bring them and make a big difference. So that Sky Hub was always like a, I guess I call it like an innovation unit in some respects, Staying on top of what's going on out there, scouting, I guess, idea, product, technology scouting, um, and having a, I guess, a process of filtering, testing, and implementing those ideas into the team. So it's really about the application of science, medicine, and tech. Um, there was another part to it as well, which was always about uh, what can we learn from what the team were doing, um, and how did that benefit other domains, other industries, and other sports. So that's where the the cross connection was really, really important. And so building the networks and connections to make that happen was a fundamental part of that project. Um, so lots of work, you know, just, just going to random spaces and creating those relationships to see what we could learn, to see what we could take forward. You know, the sports technology startup space was really beginning to emerge. Um, 
being really well connected to the academic environments, being really connected to what government invested in, what those strategic priorities were. I mean, there was amazing stuff going on in the artificial intelligence world and, you know, in the emergence of rapid manufacture. So you had to stay connected with these worlds to think, how could this work in our space? Um, so when challenges or opportunities arose for the team, you could take them forward quite quickly. So that, that's what the hub was always about. Um, very externally looking, um, I guess, you know, having a virtual network of, of contacts, of networks, of know-how. So as these things begin to emerge, you could bring them in and make a difference to what the team were trying to do. Um, so it's a fascinating experiment. Um, and it was sort of partly similar, but on a bigger scale to what we used to do in, in, in the Olympic sports. So, yeah, I mean, the team were, had already, you know, a great roster of riders. They've got a pretty established method a level of detail and planning um, and decision-making that goes on into preparing for races. The prioritization around that was pretty phenomenal. So, you know, there was a massive cog that was already happening. And I guess I was really fortunate to, to sit in and observe and play a very small role, you know, through the, you know, through the, the, the performance hub concept as I did during that time. When you, when you think about those, say you sort of mentioned science, medicine and tech. Mm. Um, I mean, the end product is obviously, uh, a, a team of guys riding riding bikes sort of day in day out supported i guess they 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 don't stay on the bus the way they stay in hotels for, for these for these grand tours like how could you if you think of those particular areas that you focused on like what kind of examples might might you give of some introductions of something that that elevates their performance somehow um yeah well actually one thing that's probably very pertinent was um just around hygiene and infection control. So I obviously everyone's focused around that now because of COVID is significant. But I think the team were on it um, years ago, partly because through observation about what they were seeing in the early years of the team, you know, a road cyclist does put in significant volumes, the team work exceptionally hard and they train hard. And sometimes, you know, invariably when your physio physiology is on the edge, your immune status is on the edge. And therefore, you know, upper respiratory tract infection, colds, all those things become a major issue, um, which means a rider's not spending time on the bike. And if you're not spending time on the bike in some respects, although it's a rather simplistic way of looking at it, if you're not riding or not training, you're possibly not developing. So they, um, there was a big project around what ended up being called Zero Days, um, which is fundamentally about ensuring riders had as much time on the bike through real detailed focus around managing illness. Um, so, you know, we we're able to bring in some real specialists already in infection control in some of the hospital sector. We worked with Nuffield hospitals. We had some specialist infection nurses who came in to study our environments to make sure all the principles around hand hygiene, um, uh, you know, were, were established and embedded. There was a massive focus around behavioral science. So it's all right putting hand gels out there. In fact, the, our evidence around keeping the hands clean has not changed for the past 10 years. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is change people's behaviors. So we spent time working with behavioral science, behavioral psych specialists around thinking about how do you design the environment you're in to ensure there's really good adherence to those things. So it was like that you go to a level of depth that you can, that, you know, until you're in it, you don't envisage it, where you're absolutely trying to take the best knowledge that exists around infection control. And that wouldn't be in sport, that'd be outside in medicine. And how do you bring that into environment, which everyone now sort of does. So the team were always ahead of it. Then when COVID drops in, you know, in some ways it's already a step ahead, but it goes to another level. Um, and the level of depth and detail around standard operational processes, the amount of thought that goes into it, 
um, you know, say particularly around how you're trying to change people's behaviours is, is second to none. And I think that that's, that, that's the type of things that you take on, um, you know, a, a challenge or something observed within the team. Um, and you go really, really deep then and bring in new, new procedures, new processes, you extract the knowledge, you run experiments, you do your exploration, you implement it across races. Because as you rightfully said, when you're on a race, you're changing your hotel every night. It's a moving circus. So hygiene on the moves is a completely different challenge to hygiene being static. So all of that needs consideration, um, you know, from mechanics to carers to riders to VIPs coming in on site to family members. Yeah, everybody's educated, informed, made aware. Uh, yeah, the, the level of detail is, is second to none. Hopefully that gives you a feel of um, how things emerge. Yeah, that's, it sounds, it's just fascinating. And you kind of, you get a sense for this when you watch, when you watch the, the programs and the interviews and listen to the interviews of different people, um, particularly Sir Dave Brailsford and, and co. And you can, you, you can see it on the, the TV that there's, there is a system in place um, and, and everything is obviously planned to the nth degree, but it's, it's just great to get an insight um, into it. So when you're, when you're considering, say that example of, of hygiene, for example, you've, you've got to think about every single aspect, I guess, from the point at which the rider like leaves their home to come to. Uh, exactly. Yeah. To, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the best way of thinking about it is, um, you get these things with life logging cameras where you just wear and they take like an image every 30 seconds. If you imagine you're doing a time motion study of a rider or a carer, you're just, you're just following their journey. And from the moment, as you say, you're in your home, do you leave, to you get into a taxi to go to the airport? You know, you're trying to understand every contact point at every stage of that journey where, where the risk of infection may be. So, you know, there'll be contact points, there'll be, toilets, there'll be kitchen spaces, all those types of things. And so you're beginning to quantify the risk, identify those high risk areas in the journey. And that's, you know, decide where you're going to put your time and effort. Because the reality is you can't do everything. You know, you focus on those areas that are likely to give you biggest bang for buck, but you've got to understand it at that level of detail. So you're dead right. You know, from the moment a rider gets up in the morning to the moment he's on the airplane or getting picked up and being transported to the team hotel for a race, you try to understand that level of detail um, so so you can put things in place to sort of support and manage it. In terms of the, the team itself, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a big team and you've got people who'd be based in the UK, um, people who will, who will go out on the Grand Tours, which I, I guess are the main effort. Um, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, assume, I assume they're the main effort. Um, what, and I, I guess, does the structure of the team's change and and how would you sort of run through it and summarize that 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 team as you were in it um a couple of years ago um it's a very virtual performance team so riders and staff are all over europe um some in the uk some in france monaco spain andorra um the main service course is in belgium you know or you got all your partnerships which are crucial pinarello and bikes in italy castelli was in italy so you know it's a real virtual program teams then come together for races. So they'd have, you know, when the sort of season starts, December time, you have your early pre-season camp, they may be off in Europe, um, but pretty much from January racing starts. So there's a huge amount of planning that goes in to get that right. So, you know, communication is critical to keeping everybody connected, but the level of detail around every rider, a race plan, a training plan, 
you know, you've got all that logistics and organization to sort. So you're getting bikes sent from Belgium to races, race trucks, kitchen trucks. You know, there's a phenomenal amount of planning to go in to run the operation because it's very virtual. Um, and because it's constantly on the move. So, um, but that's where communication is crucial. You know, I guess it's dramatically changed now with our use of Zoom and all the other tools in tech. Everything's done by, you know, was just conference call based anyway. But, you know, the amount of time and effort you'd spend on those calls, just talking things through and, and making everyone feel part of it to have their contribution to get to the out, outcomes, you know, was pretty phenomenal. Not a lot of people are willing to spend that time in planning. It's the old um, Abraham Lincoln one, isn't it? I'm going to chop down a tree and um, I'm going to spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. Um, it's that, you know, the level of thought into planning at a meticulous level um, is essential to being successful. You mentioned the, the kitchen truck there. And so when they, when they, get, when they get out onto, um, into Spain or France or Italy for one of these tours, they're, they're supported by kind of state-of-the-art vehicle fleet. Mm-hmm. What uh, obviously, I guess they've got the the team bus, which isn't really. I guess they don't sleep on that. That that's just for nope. meeting yeah. or like how's how is the vehicle fleet? What's yeah, I mean, it's, um, so there's usually a rider bus, and you know there'll be I think you know maybe ten to twelve seats. You know, really comfort like space age seats on there for rest relaxation. That's always taking the riders to hotels from hotels, picking them up after races. There's a meeting space on there for the team as well. A small, for like the small performance team. Um, yeah, the kitchen trucks manned by a chef and some assistants. And so that moves with it as well. So all the riders will eat um, and prepare through the kitchen truck. And that's just for the riders. Everybody else in the team would usually go into the hotel. So when you're on race, you're allocated a hotel. Um, but you have an advanced party. So you imagine if one day, if everyone gets up on the day, the riders get up, have their breakfast in the kitchen truck, um, they'll jump onto the bus and they'll be transported. There's a whole fleet of cars that then the coaches may go in, but there's some advanced vehicles that are already moving onto the hotels. They're not really a part of the race. So they're moving onto the hotels. So you've got the mechanics truck as well. Um, Cause the mechanics jump in the car. Once they go on all the bikes and all the spares and stuff are in the cars, um, they're off towards the race. The, the, all the other vehicles are driven onto the hotel and there's an advanced party that's already getting all those, when they get to the hotel, getting all the rooms ready, blackout blinds, aircon, cleaning, all the rooms prepared for the riders in advance when they arrive. So, yeah, there is a massive fleet. They're custom designed and developed for, for the function. Um, you know, they're all super clean environments. They're, they're highly professional. You know, there's lots of images. You can go on Google to get a good feel of it. Um, and that's how you make the circus work. You know, you can't do it without it. It sounds, it sounds a little bit like a military operation. Is that, are, there, are there people who... Um, with military experience in the team or were there were there when you were there yeah yeah absolutely i mean uh, the logistical organization around it is um is is phenomenal really i mean rod ellingworth who's now at uh he was at bahrain mclaren that's now changed um team bahrain uh you know he was at the start of the team and that was one of his real strengths and um, he's always worked in cycling anyway but he was a you know, the level of planning and planning and planning in detail behind that was a real strength of his. Mm. And he, you know, spent a lot of time and effort getting that right. Just, uh, I'm conscious we talk, we're talking a lot about Team Sky. It's just, it, um, it is a particularly interesting subject. And obviously there's, there's plenty of other things that you've done as well. I mean, as you, you mentioned, working at the RFU, um, being, being one of them. So I guess the last question about this, partic- this particular sport, if you like it, you mentioned the measuring the performance limit of the riders 
in terms of then trying to manage whether or not they get infections uh, and, and diseases. How, what kind of tools would you use to, to measure their, their, their limit, how, how close they are to their limit and then manage their training? How does that work? Um, well, I mean, ultimately, in cycling is one of the most measurable sports they are. So every pedal stroke you take training in competition is measured because your cranks are instrumented. So you're being able to measure power output. Um, so, you, you know, heart rate, power output, cadence, all the characteristics on the bike are measured all the time. Um, of course, in and alongside that, there'll be some other things that are done through regular blood screening, uh, daily reporting from riders subjectively. There's a whole database of insights that are used to understand how riders are responding to training. Um, so some very objective things, but equally some subjective things. You can't move away from the fact that um, you know, what a coach may see with a rider with their eyes is equally as important to observation skills you know, conversationals, all of those things become part of the picture. So nothing's ignored, but objectively, yeah, pretty much everything that you can do is, is quantified. And the evolution of, of sensors in cycling is much further ahead than most sports before even GPS arrived. So their ability to quantify and understand that, um, where it's now sort of common practice, has always been in place. You know, when you are literally measuring every pedal stroke, which is the way you've got to look at it, you've got a really understanding how riders are responding to, to the type of training you're giving. Um, and once you have those tools, it's really important then how you construct your training process, um, protocols you got within your training, so you can look at repeated efforts to understand how people are responding. You know, you know when people are super tired, they often can't hit max heart rate on efforts. So like all of those things are, um, are an important part of the process so there's lots and lots of things in place it's not one thing that gives you a direct answer you know you're, you're looking at the landscape and you're looking then going at granular detail um, with your medical staff just to understand how people are particularly responding through what goes on and I think that helps you better understand how to construct your training and race programs so when riders are there they can deliver as good as they good as is expected in terms of in terms of using the heart rate um I guess obviously you, me you measure what their max heart rate is. Um, what what kind of ballpark would a, the max heart rate of a of a of a uh, Well, I mean it, it's it's so individual, so it's really you know hard to say that. But I think the use of max heart rate as a measure of where people may be in fatigue is 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 the important thing. So like it does vary on the age of the riders. Anyway, you know one ninety in excess of two hundred. So um, yeah, and they they you know they're not afraid to go there. I think when you're at that level of sport. Um, you know, the ability to go to those places and hold it much longer than, than somebody else. You know, you talk about going into the hurt locker. It's often one of the things that makes a difference. And that's what goes off and above the neck as well. It's the willingness to, to push yourself where others may not be willing to go. Mm. So if we, we look back at um, your time at the RFU, um, what, what, because uh, that's obviously a much older organisation yeah. that, has, that has kind of developed um, latterly, really, I guess, in the, I don't know how many how many years. Certainly, the the um, perhaps the, the the advent of professionalism and Clive Woodward take, um, taking control, maybe, and then the World Cup being one. Perhaps that was a watershed. I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah. when you when you look back at your time there, what what was the I don't know what were the key differences versus um, versus Team Sky, for example? And what um, the, look, I mean. Um... There's some amazing people in rugby who are really passionate about what they do. Um, absolutely. It's just the organisation is massive. And I think the difference is probably the way I describe it is a bit like a super tanker versus a speedboat. 
you know, the, the change process and ability to move um, in a big national governing body, which ultimately, although it has, you know, I was working in player development with, with some great people, um, that just because of what it sits within, I guess the, the, the autonomy and the decision-making just takes a bit of time um, compared to being in a, an organization when you're frontline, like Ineos Grenadiers or Team Sky as it was. So that's the biggest difference. So the process of change is, is much slower. There's a lot more influence. There's a lot more people to take with you. Um, there's a lot more, yeah, uh, there's a lot more persuasion, communication needed. You know, in rugby, you're a lot of the players ultimately are associated with academies in the club game and then then come into the international game. So those partnerships and relationships are fundamental. Um, so that there's just a lot more cogs, if that makes sense in the, mm. and you need to know how to wheel all of those cogs really to, to become a success. I mean, I know it's a relatively short period, but that's, that's the nature of what's needed in that, in that environment. Um, certainly the, you know, um, where Eddie Jones is with his team at the top, he will be able to move much faster than other aspects of it for sure. Mm. But you're still sat within a big machine. Um, but certainly in you know, his perspective, he'll be able to make those decisions. In the area that I was working, there's, because you're, you need to work with stakeholders, you're working with partners, you need trust in relationships. Um, that just takes time. There is no shortcut to it really in that sense. So that's the biggest difference. But um, everybody, the sp all the sports that I've been fortunate to work in, you know, that's one of the differences. The similarities that people just care about the people they're working with, which are the athletes. You know, they, they, they will do their utmost to be the best they can and to give them the best opportunities. You know, and, and the people that I've been fortunate to work with have always been like that. And I think that's the thing that makes a difference. It's never about them. There's no egos in with it. It's always about the riders, the players, you know, and supporting them as best as possible so they can achieve their potential. Mm. And the brilliant people that I've worked with have always had that. And I think you can't take that away from, from you know, when you look at all the all sports and most sports, that's probably one of the commonalities. Those coaches and support staff and administrators just care about the people they're working with. Um, and that comes through in boatloads. When you look when you look back, sort of right to the to the beginning, you spent ten years at um, at UK Sport, um, and that sort of around about you know shortly after you finished your your PhD or fa fairly shortly, um, that ten year period that must have been a, a real learning curve. Like how how did that shape the direction that you took moving forward? Oh yeah, uh, gotta reflect back on that now. Um... I mean, it was an amazing experience. It was like being the way I sort of describe it in the early 2000s is a bit like a startup. So um, Olympic and Paralympic sport, as we know, it was in those very early stages of evolution. So, you know, without a doubt, it was a very bumpy journey trying to figure out how to get it right for the UK, because at the time we had a lot of Australians working with us. So you come with a particular prerequisite around them and they've been super successful about what you think works, you, you know, and, and often that doesn't replicate itself in this environment. So um, there was is an evolution of a big organization, really, and the evolution of, um, yeah, evolution on the phone, uh, or evolution on the, just, just evolution in the system, which is a fascinating insight. When you're young like I was, um, I like to think I still am, young like I was, um, and you're going through that, you learn a lot at the time but I think the freedom and flexibility to learn from that was was really really important um so it just it just became a bit more sophisticated a bit more systematic my role emerged I ended up leading the research innovation team my fundamental job was to support sports and helping be successful and at time a big focus was around medals you know there's 
the nature of investments now changing, um, you know, for the right reasons. So we'd work on projects with them to try to, you know, seek to be more successful. And that would be everything from bike design to understanding training to studying coaching, you know, all everything. There was nothing off the table. So I think during that period, you had to learn to be, I guess, the way we were like conductors of the orchestra. Sports were the audience. They would come in and tell us what they, music they think they wanted to hear. We'd put the experts together and try to solve those problems with them and learn from that engagement and that experience. So it was phenomenal. I mean, we, we tried to build on the strengths within the UK science, medicine, technology sector. It wasn't about employing your own. It was working with the best. You know, we'd work with F1. We'd work with America's Cup. You go to some amazing universities. And it was just a time where you got to, oh, you learned so much at the time. It's just like being in a permanent learning environment. Um, yeah, and so, you know, I went through five or six summer and winter Olympic cycles. Um, and there's so much cross-transfer in all of that stuff as well. So much cross-transfer um, that it was just, you know, it's, it was one of the most, I guess, most in significant learning experience for me in my career in that sense. And the opportunities it provided to sort of grow and develop as an individual, um, you know, under the right leadership were, were second to none. So, yeah, when you work in a startup and you're sort of trying to do everything and because you've never been there before, you don't have the wisdom. Got to look back now and wish I knew what I knew now, how to do about it differently. But you were, you were, you were like forging new, new ways and trying new, new ways to do things. You know, a lot of people I work with at the time are still part of it and still part of that same structure and still delivering in a similar way. And, uh, you know, that, that's, they were amazing in what they needed to do. So we had a great team. Initially, it was me and one individual. That grew to now what's a significant team and a significant, I think, competitive advantage for British Olympic and Paralympic sport. You know, their, their commitment to research, technology and innovation has always been significant. And they've been really smart and responsive and acted like a speedboat to make that work. So the, you, you mentioned the, the relationships with, with out external organisations and that's where you would you know, go and do your, do your research and learn from them, like those, those really sort of um, well-known organisations. And then that would then be fed back to Olympic and Paralympic planning and training wholesale or because obviously there's such a huge number of sports like how when you're then applying that stuff internally would you be are you, were you focusing on particular disciplines or how did it work uh it wasn't no it wasn't any particular disciplines it was based on like there's quite a systematic process of understanding where you'd focus your time and effort um so it, and then it was about finding the right discipline skills and people to help you deliver on it so, you know, there was, there was a big focus around tech and engineering, but that was some of our sports had the infrastructures in place. That was where the real need was, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, and it just varied and grew. So you'd need to have a network of, uh, you know, all, all disciplines in science, medicine, tech and engineering. Um, and that emerged over time. So as challenges arose, you'd be able to bring the right people together. Um, but yeah, big emphasis on engineering tech because that's a UK strength. But we also have a super strong sports science sector and a human sciences sector. So drawing on that through medicine and through science, particularly when you get into understanding things like immune in, in training adherence and, you know, and, and especially the growth in, in I guess, increased recognition around psychology and clinical psych and the psychosocial emotional side of it, I think is important. Um, so yeah, it's just all of the areas. There was nothing nothing's not important it's just which one you turn up at what time you know that all of them are important all the time depending on the athlete the circumstances the sport and where you may be at in a planning cycle so your ability to react and respond was always important and that's what we tried to create 
a system and structure that could could respond, you know, and had the toolbox and all the expertise there as is required. Great. Well, Scott, I'm conscious of uh, I'm conscious of time, and um, I've just I've got one I've got one last question based on you know based on your background and uh, and all of this experience in terms of managing performance. How how do you apply that to your to yourself in terms of your your training? Like, what's your what do you do training wise? Like, what uh, you good question. What are your objectives, I mean, um, etc. I I do ride my bike and I do some gym work and. Um, I'm actually now back at school, back into doing a little bit of coaching as well. But I mean, my purpose for it is is definitely to switch off. Um, I'm a competitor at heart, so I still do like, you know, stretching myself. But, you know, my, I've, I've actually, because I, I don't know if it came through, but my time of working in cycling means I have a real passion for it now. And I like to ride. I really like to ride um, and get out and enjoy the outdoors. Um, so, yeah, anything like that, I need to be physically challenged every day. And a lot of that will be because the intensity of the day and work. I and mean, often it's a bit stressful for me. It's often where I get my catalyst moments. You sort of clear your head and um, things sort of come together around what, what you need to do. So, um, yeah, physical exercise for me is, uh, is fundamental every day. So, but I love riding my bike and hopefully I'll never stop. So what would, what would a sort of typical week's training, if you, could, if you were managing your own time, and, uh, yeah. and and work would work would fit around it. What might a typical week's training look like? Uh, well, I mean, at, at the moment, I'm probably only doing this time of year four to six hours on the bike, and much more high intensity just because it's time based. Um, and then you know a couple sessions of yoga, and maybe you know one or two circuits. So more generic sort of strength based stuff, all over body. In the summer, a lot more volume on the bike, so a lot more time outside. Obviously, it's lighter, longer days, you know. And I would be on three, four hour bike rides maybe my volume would go up, you know, would, would increase two, two and a half times. Um, but I've still got a family like most people. So getting the green card to do that's really, really important. And so you end up doing it really early because I mean, you know, I, the, the career move to Millfield was really needed and a chance to reconnect and spend some, a lot more time with my son who was developing and growing as well. So um, family always come first in that. So to get, to get the training time in, I've got to be super early. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Scott, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, thanks a lot for taking the time. I really, I really appreciate it. If people want to keep up with you or, or maybe, or maybe Millfield find out more about it, like what's, what's the best way for them to, to do so? Oh, good question. I'm not that active on social anymore because I just don't have time to do it, but I'd certainly, you know, get onto social, follow Millfield Sport. Um, my Twitter is Scott D uk at scott d uk if you want to find a bit more but you know if people want to get in touch and see what's going on here or are interested in what they've heard please come down i mean um we're certainly on a journey um in terms of in terms of what we're trying to do here but always happy to share experiences and learn off others in terms of the journey that we're on so yeah go by social not as active as on it as i used to be but millfield school scott d uk um or millfield sports um are the twitter handles brilliant all right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks, Mark. See you soon.